Without large-scale intervention here, we are going to face the biggest fall in real incomes that we have seen in decades. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we're looking at inflation. How are policymakers, particularly in Europe and the US, going to get it under control? My guess is that they'll rely on traditional instruments. They'll crank up interest rates, look for other ways to reduce economic growth. And that, of course, engenders all of the significant trade-offs to the lives of all the people who are subject to those interest rates and being affected by inflation going forward. Two experts tell us what they expect the impacts to be of monetary tightening. Ultimately, all this will dampen growth, we think, into a potentially deep recession in Europe and also recession in the US. And how do governments protect people from the ravages of inflation? Tax cuts? I don't think cutting taxes is a long-term solution when it comes to preventing rises in inflation. In fact, cutting taxes may actually drive up inflation when we least want to see it. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with Eric Peterson, Managing Director at Kearney and Sandra Philippen, Chief Economist at ABN AMRO, looking at inflation and how it might be tackled. This is very contradictory, but this is exactly the policy dilemma that is on the ground in Europe. This is Radio Davos. Inflation is a major concern for economic policymakers around the world, for companies and for all of us who are seeing prices rise faster than our incomes. We've covered the issue on several previous episodes of Radio Davos and on our sister podcast, Agenda Dialogues. There are links to those in the show notes. On this episode, though, we hear from two experts who appeared on a video show hosted by my colleague Abhinav Chug, who works in the World Economic Forum's Strategic Intelligence Platform, which joins the dots between the multitude of causes and effects that impact our world. The audio you're about to hear is from the video series called Our World in Transformation that Strategic Intelligence puts out to the World Economic Forum's digital members every two weeks. As you'll hear, some of the questions he puts to the guests are from those members. You can sign up up as a digital member at the website www.weforum.org slash join dash us slash home. On this episode, Abhinav speaks to Sandra Philippen, Chief Economist at ABN AMRO Bank, and Eric Peterson, Partner and Managing Director at the consultancy Kearney. He starts with a look at the 2% inflation target that many central banks try to achieve. With inflation in the US and Europe at around 8 or 9% at present, he starts by asking Sandra Philippen if she thinks inflation can be wrestled down to that 2% level by next year. We think not. Well, it depends on... I mean, where we end in 2023 depends on which geographic area we're talking about. But I don't think there will be maybe any place where we where we get to the 2%. No. That said, actually, we should realize that the, the 2% target, so being on 2% or close to 2%, is not something that, that needs to be achieved in the immediate run, right? So the, the if you're talking about the inflation targets of the uh, ECB and the Fed, those are longer-term targets and not immediate targets. So I think that is an important nuance here. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. Eric, I wanted to ask you, how successful have interest rates been in tackling inflation? I, it, it's been used many times in the past as a, as a tool, but are we ready? Is, this, is it going to work again this time? 
Well, the story is playing itself out in terms of how interest rates are tackling inflation. But one thing is crystal clear. We have a long way to go from where we are now. Global inflation, as we all know, is extremely high, as you mentioned. We have it at 7.7 range projected for this year. A corresponding level for the G7 countries of about 7%. Now, the good news is that interest rates are pushing it down now. It is declining although quite unevenly, as Sandra said. But we think it could fall probably to the 3% range by the end of 2023. But in my view, I agree with Sandra, I think 2% is out of the cards, at least for next year. And all that, of course, assumes that we don't encounter unexpected circumstances that serve to increase inflation. We got a painful reminder of that at the beginning of this year, that that is a very risky assumption indeed. Until recently, a lot of factors relating to inflation were attributed to more temporary factors, such as like the COVID-19 lockdown, supply chain disruptions, and production constraints. Now the story seems to be something different. What are, what are some of the underlying factors that we're not paying enough attention to that we should be talking about more now? Sandra, would you, would you like to start on this one? Uh, yeah, that's a very important question, actually. So I think that of course, we had inflation before the war in, in the war, war between Russia and Ukraine started. But what has happened since then is, is an energy crisis. And that was, of course, primarily driven by the war and the shortage of Russian gas flows, at least for, for the European continent, that is, that is the main thing. Then two other factors that are getting less attention, they're not that big, but, but I don't think we should underestimate them either, is at least speaking for Europe again for a moment. So one, the continuing commitment to the Paris Agreement. So that means an energy transition where we have decided in Europe to not consider all alternatives and keep on that path. And that is actually increasing the squeeze. And the third element that is actually just, I mean, I don't think it's been systematically brought together yet, but what we're seeing at least over the past over the last summer is that there's heat and drought going on which is basically decreasing water levels generating shortages in electricity from norway there is lower river lower water levels in in rivers preventing important energy commodities to reach their destination to generate energy and there is warming water as well which is basically leading to nuclear power plants to operate below capacity and those are all factors that are now playing so we're kind of reaching a perfect storm in a way and i think that without um large-scale intervention here we are going to face the biggest fall in real incomes that we have seen in decades and on top of that, there will be industry output losses from either the margin squeeze from these prices or from rationing, which could be government induced. So that is without any intervention. So we are already seeing, of course, from the monetary side, large interventions. So the, the Fed is likely to, to tighten significantly further while inflation risks are to the upside. ECB is following suit, but I think we should realize that, that Europe in, is both having the, the tightening impact from, from the ECB's actions, but also tightening from the spillovers of the US tightening. And this is pushing bond yields up and equity markets down. And ultimately, all this will dampen growth, we think, into a potentially deep recession in Europe and also recession in the US. 
But when you talk about a, a large-scale intervention that is, that is required at this point, yeah. is that relating to converting the shock that we're facing right now in terms of energy supply and prices into more of an opportunity towards alternative investments? Or are, are there other large-scale in interventions that could, that could have greater impact? Yeah, so... So, so I think the, the, the first thing to, to, to state here is that the, we should be aware of, at least for the ECB, which is very different than the Fed, right? Because the Fed is, is basically fighting homegrown inflation, while the ECB is fighting mainly imported inflation. So, so from the ECB side, a lot of the counterweight and the intervention needs to come from fiscal, fiscal support. And if you think about the fiscal task, it's also a very daunting one. Because on the one hand, you need to prevent poverty, a massive scale poverty from energy bills that are that just can't be can't be paid anymore. You want to soften the blow to consumption from the spillovers of those higher energy bills in, in consumption in general, which is of course lowering growth. But at the same time, you need to destroy demand in order to tackle this inflation because this is not a price rise that is driven solely by risk pricing. This is an actual real shortage problem. And the shortage problem can be tackled if you don't destroy demand. And there's the, the painful trade-off of policymakers that they need to face basically at, at, this, at this point in time. So I think that dilemma basically generates the risk of providing policy instruments which, which provide large compensations, hopefully lump sum and not tax reductions, because then basically you, 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 create, you, you destroy the incentive for demand to destruction. But let's say if, if, if the governments decide for, for lump sum transfers, the problem is that if you uh, tackle that to, and you reach the wrong people, the, basically the people who still have a large COVID savings on their bank accounts and are still received from our payments data are still not tapping into them into this savings. And you start transferring money to them at the wrong point in time when the, when the energy bill has not really fully come through into eroding purchasing power. Then you basically also run the risk of increasing the inflationary problem because basically you, you incentivize people to spend more while you need to destroy this demand. So, so the, the compensation needs to be a compensation for increasing costs, and we should avoid to create additional spending power. And, and this sounds, you know, you know, this is very contradictory, but, but this is exactly the policy dilemma that, that, is, that is on the ground in, in Europe. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. There's, there's a big debate and a policy dilemma over, over, especially like, I mean, you mentioned tax cuts. As, as, as an instrument over here. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Eric, as well. Is cutting taxes a sustainable solution over here? Yeah, I don't, I don't think cutting taxes is a long-term solution when it comes to preventing rises in inflation. The idea is that the need for a disinflationary overall macroeconomic stance which is really hard to achieve and has the contradictions embedded in it that Sandra has just mentioned, is difficult to achieve with either decreased taxes or significant spending on government side, a double-edged sword in my view. In fact, cutting taxes may actually increase consumer disposable income, lead to rises in demand for goods services, and could that could serve to even drive up inflation when we least want to see it. There's some interesting case studies on this underway here in the U.S. right now. Some of our states have proposed 
and implemented tax cuts in an effort to tame inflation, including uh, Florida, which has done tax holidays on sales with certain consumer products, Iowa, personal and corporate tax, and Virginia, gas tax holidays. And while it may be uh, politically uh, attractive to offer constituents tax breaks, this is generally shown to have inflationary uh, trends to drive up consumption. So in the end, I think we need to come at this problem from both sides, supply and demand side, that includes boosting supply of key goods and services. Gasoline and food obviously are in the cards for all the reasons that we've talked about. And this also brings us to a discussion, I think, on the globalization track, which is influencing the, the degree to which tax cuts and other national policy issues can be put into place. Yes, talking about that globalization track, let's take into account some of the geoeconomic threats that, that are kind of fueling this as well. I mean, we've had our supply chain disruptions and, 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 and a war at this point, but this doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of statements being made about now we're entering a period of a lot of volatility and the great moderation is over. Um, is there some kind of rethinking taking place for monetary policy as we enter this new volatile era? Sandra? So if you think about the, the, the globalization dilemma, at least, I mean, since, since COVID, we had a massive supply chain disruptions, which were actually the, the prime reason for the, so basically supply chains not keeping up with the excessive demand from, from reopening after COVID. That was the, the problem that we used to be concerned about before, before the war. And, and, and actually two things are happening since then is one, I think that one, one element that basically made the problem worse, which is there is a structural realignment going on in, in those basic commodities since, since the war start, started. And that will find a new equilibrium at some point, but that can take time. And I think that we have for a long time been thinking that, you know, did this globalization was already globalization, but it was not yet deglobalization. And, you know, there, there were many people already predicting that that would happen at earlier points in time. We haven't seen it up until now, but we think that the war might be kind of the last shift in this direction, which, which might turn, turn this globalization stream. However, that said, it is also a matter of just new equilibriums that, that, that will emerge. So that is, in, in a sense, also kind of price increasing, so making matters worse. But there's also the other side, and that is that, so we have constructed a global supply bottleneck indicator from kind of a collated set of existing supply indicators that we weighed in, in, in various ways. And basically that has been very helpful to keep track of where global supply disruptions are. And what we're currently seeing is that that is the one silver lining actually that in energy crisis that we see at least from, from the commodity prices side, price pressures from global supply are really going down. So, of course, the worries are what's going to happen to China and the, you know, our growth projections are already, uh, I think, is what, 2% below China's tar official targets. So that is not looking well. And, and there, are, there are many concerns on the Chinese economy. But for at least at this point in time, we see that this bottleneck indicator is going in the right direction.
So that is that is one silver lining I would add here. Thank you, thank you. And and, and let's let's talk about uh, the cost of living crisis a bit more and, and on the on the impacts of this. Eric, perhaps perhaps would be curious to hear your your insights on this as well. Is there a role for central bankers to play in 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 constraining the crisis that we're kind of going deeper and deeper into here? Yeah, let me kick off, Sandra, and then I'd be interested to hear your comments as well. I believe that central bankers have a critical role to play right now in where things are going. Really quite amazing for us to take stock right now in terms of where we were prior to the pandemic, then the rigors of the pandemic itself, and then the turbulence, the circumstances that uh, in Jackson Hole, they called uh, the onset of a period of great volatility that have become right, uh, that have started uh, right now. Really extraordinary that we've moved from quantitative uh, easing and low and negative interest rates to where we are now. Uh, no specter of uh, inflation to the very high uh, inflationary drag that we have on the economy right now. And then the geopolitical churn that we see that's contributing uh, to all of the above certainly has become uh, more pronounced. Uh, so as we think about it from that context, then the operative question becomes, how are central banks rethinking this great turbulence, this great volatility? And my guess is that they'll rely on traditional instruments, they'll crank up interest rates, look for other ways to reduce economic growth. And that, of course, engenders uh, all of the significant trade-offs with respect uh, to the lives of all the people who are subject to those interest rates and being affected by inflation going forward. And then one last point, I think that inflation now is kind of uh, spreading out and we need to be thinking about some of the issues that existed way back when in the 1960s and 70s when perceptual inflation was something that was a very, very significant obstacle. And uh, we really can't afford now not to have gone through these significant macroeconomic and policy shifts to address the threat of inflation without trying to put it out or put it back in its place in the longer term. If, if I just may pick up where, where, where Eric is going there, I think this is, a, this is yet another very interesting discussion. And what, to be frank, I don't, I'm not sure yet what in balance the outcome is going to be on inflation from this increasingly volatile world. So, you know, the, the first thing you think about is, of course, that if, if kind of if, if firms and governments and households start to kind of hedge against a more volatile and uncertain worlds, they will accept efficiency losses at the gain of certainty increases, right? So this is kind of a, a general mechanism that, that those efficiency losses paid for resilience increases, if you want to call it like that, is something that is potentially inflation increasing. So if you think about very concretely, if you have long commodity chains, which are very, which have very little stocks at, 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 at many points in the chain, if we're living in a more and more risky environment because of geopolitical threats or maybe natural hazards on what have you, what, what may cause this increased risk, chains will either become shorter, there will be more stocks at each, at each part of the chain, or there will be horizontal alternatives, which are also costly. So in the end, all that will be inflationary. 
on the other side, there's the counterweight because if if this volatility is going to dampen growth, then basically demand is just going to be lower, which is disinflationary. And so how these two forces are going to play out in the end in, in inflation and therefore central bank policies and, and the way they think about this fundamentally in the long run, I find it still a bit early days to, to, to be conclusive on that, to be honest. Just, just on your point on building resilience and, and change, we have a question from one of our digital members, which, which, uh, which refers to how can we effectively and efficiently adjust demands that we are coming closer to living within planetary boundaries and not so dependent, become not so dependent on planned obsolescence without causing a massive recession? Important question, really, as we think about uh, not looking at it just from a very economic perspective, but also, yes, as pointed out, planetary boundaries. How would you would you would you like to add to that? I think that that is a fundamental question, and it is actually also an economic question. Why is it an economic question? Because we know from a number of scenario analysis that we did is that basically staying on the current path while ignoring planetary boundaries is going to be economically radically more costly than staying within those planetary boundaries. So it is also from an economic perspective, the right thing to do. And I, and actually I was thinking about, you know, whether I was going to say this or not, but I think actually that the current energy crisis, I, there is another silver lining to this. And I think we should also be, to be open about this because the, the governments around the world are basically, you know, mostly introducing carrots and norms and to a lower than desired level sticks in terms of carbon pricing. And, and we as economists, we know that carbon pricing is the conditional sine qua non this transition is going to happen. Why? Because basically a lot of the solutions for decarbonization need to come still from technologies and, and, and business cases that are still unborn. And in, in order to let them be born, we need to have the stick as well next to the carrot and the norms. And I think that in absence of political willpower to introduce these sticks, I think a part of the price rise from the energy, let's say the, the, the punishment of, of being energy intensive, which often goes hand in hand with carbon intensive, I think part of that price increase could be uh, the right uh, speeding up of, of, of the transition now. And I hope we're not going to take all of those incentives away. And therefore, I think that is also another silver lining of this energy crisis. While at the same time, I do want to emphasize that that does not mean that the lower incomes who don't have the means to, to deal with the energy or, or the increased inflation or actually food costs in, in the developed world. So let's please not forget about that. So don't, there, there needs to be sufficient uh, support for that. But, you know, we see, we're seeing so much energy price increases right now that at least a part of it could be the right stick to, to speed up the transition. Eric, anything to add to that? I'll be very brief. I think that the punishing extreme weather events that we see across the world right now make the question asked by our viewer all the more profound. And I think also we need to take that even more seriously in the light of what I think 
are increasingly parochial national policies with respect to broader economic policies and other national policies that, that influence our capacity to work together to address some of these big global issues that exist. And that, I think, is a challenge to the economics community to think new and practical and innovative ways in which we can be even more helpful going forward and uh, groups across the board in terms of thinking how communities can work together. Thank you. I, I want to take one more question from our additional member tuning in, Joydeep Ghosh. What is the current economic situation in India? Is it stagflation? Any insights to share on, on India? We're, we're projecting, as I've suggested, a decline in inflation in major economies across the world. India clearly has some degree of inflationary drag right now, but we're projecting that it will restore significant levels of economic uh, momentum relatively soon. Uh, so I think everyone needs to be concerned about prospect of uh, stagflation. But in effect, I think we're, we're on a route in India back to the kind of significant growth environment that we saw prior to the pandemic. I just want to ask one last question from my side. What are the top three things that countries can do right now to, to tackle inflation? Sandra, let's over to you on this one. Yeah, well, I think the... The, the painful measure is actually on top of the list, which is demand destruction. Because if you have a, well, it depends on the region, okay? So, so if you have homegrown inflation, like in the US, I think the, the, the activities by the Fed is basically the key policy prescription, which is also taking place. It's also painful, but necessary. If you have an imported inflation, like on, on the European continent, then there is no way around demand destruction. And, and, and then basically there are two policies that come with that. One is basically to let the demand destruction happen naturally that comes from the price increases, but like, like intrinsically intertwined with that policy should be a protection of vulnerable households, everybody. And that is not just the lowest income brackets, but with these energy bills, it should also be the lower middle incomes, I think. And, and, and to make sure that also people stay together in this, in, in this turbulence. And I think mainly for Europe, that is a major challenge with populist political forces strongly on the rise, notably in Italy. So this is a, another political challenge that, that the European continent has to face. Eric, closing remarks on this, top three things. Top three things. First, we cannot allow perceptions of future inflation to occur. We need to find ways to extricate that from our thinking. And if that requires new policy pathways, then we need to find them. Second is that policymakers at night need to lay awake, worrying about broader stratifications that have come not only with the pandemic and not only with the turbulence, but to be sure with the current bout of inflation that we're encountering. And then finally, and this builds on what Sandra said, please, please, let's not politicize the debate on inflation. We need to get through this now in a way that helps us all move the economic needle back to a more stable uh, environment for broader, more robust future growth. And then we need to be thinking about the critical uh, elements, the global elements like climate change, extreme weather, geopolitical issues, etc. 
as we go forward with this. Eric Peterson, Partner and Managing Director at Kearney. You also heard from Sandra Philippen, Chief Economist at ABN AMRO. Asking the questions was Abhinav Chug. There's lots more about inflation and economics in general on our website, weforum.org. And for more great podcasts, check out Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues, and the World Economic Forum Book Club Podcast. Please subscribe to all of them and to Radio Davos. And to talk about those podcasts and any other podcasts you love, join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Club, look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. Radio Davos will be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>